I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You two are the best double act in the world. <laughs> I know. I know. It's embarrassing, isn't it? I know. She leads me astray. Welcome, this is episode 5 of the Paul Ryder Tapes. As we all know, Paul sadly passed away in July of 2022, but in the months leading up to his death, he sat down with me, his ex-wife, Angela Smith, to tell his complete life story, warts and all, for the very first time. We'd no idea that he was about to die and we finished recording his story just 12 days before he passed away. So this project has become part of his legacy. Coming up in this episode, we got loads of guests. We're going to be hearing from Peter Hook, Dave Haslam, Phil Sachs, the original Mondays manager, and Gaz Mark, Bez and PD from the Mondays. Plus, of course, Linda and Sandra. Here's a sneak peek. They couldn't have been less bothered about helping me write something interesting about the band. And it got whittled down to the last four and uh, we was in the last four, but we couldn't do the show because Mark Day had a nosebleed and got rushed <laughs> to hospital for a spinal tap. I thought, wow, this is interesting. I wouldn't say it was of the you know the highest quality, but it certainly had a, a shambolic uh, edginess to it that was very interesting. And on the way up there, I seen a, a pair of maracas which I grabbed, and I got on there, and I was like off the head of this assay. I was giving it rock all, and I had a, when I came off, I had a hole the size of a fifty pence piece in my hand. Okay, so we were at the point where you'd sent out your demo to everybody. Everyone yeah. had rejected you. London Records had come to see you. People had thrown bricks through the school window. Mm -hmm. And your conclusion to that was they were all idiots. They're all idiots. And I've still got all the rejection letters. And at the time, after the demos, we all, all the rejection letters... <clears throat> I was still at the post office working in Newton Street, which was the great big um, post office in, in Manchester City Centre. And across the road was a gym called the Corinthian. So I thought I'll join the gym. Why? Just because I wanted to get rid of my beer belly. Right. Which I had when I was 18. Did you? Were you a big drinker at that point? Oh, God, yeah. I started going in pubs when I was, like, 14. But And you weren't doing drugs at this point? No. No, no. Not even smoking weed? Not even smoking weed. I was a beer monster. Oh, were you? Was yeah. everybody a beer monster? Oh, yeah, we all was all you? beer monsters. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mark Day still is. I don't know how he does it. <laughs> Never wakes up with an hangover. Wow. He's always first down for breakfast in the hotel. <laughs> Um, so I'm at Newton Street, aged 17, 18, and I joined this gym across the road from where I worked, and I was in there one day, and I thought, I recognise him from somewhere, and I kept looking at him, and, and I couldn't get it, and I went back the next day, and he was in there again, this guy, and it clicked, it was Peter Hook from New Order. Joy Division. Joy Division, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
So I thought, oh, maybe I could give him a demo. But I wasn't into, like, going up to him at the gym. Why? Just not my thing. Um, so I sneaked into the office of the Corinthian where all the uh, membership cards were and flicked through until I got to H for Hook. Found Peter Hook's registration card and got his address. Oh, wow. Got his address and then drove up to his house in my post office minivan when I was at work. I'd been delivering somewhere in Failsworth or something like that and I had to pass his address. Where, where was he living? He was in New Newton Heath. Yeah. Yeah, in this, like, 1950s semi-detached yeah. kind of little two-bedroom house. Yeah. Um, so I drove to his house on the way back from delivering a telegram in Failsworth and knocked on his door and he answered. I can remember the day, actually. He, he, he put the tape through the door. So I opened the door and um, there was a postman there. And um, he, he, he looked a bit shocked. Uh, and I said, oh, have you put through this, this through the door? You know, because it was just the cassette. No explanation or anything. Um, just no letter it. with it or anything? No. Just no. not in okay. an envelope? No, just the cassette. And I said, can you do me a favour? And he said, if you want money, I've got none. Typical <laughs> Ricky. Typical Peter Hawke. If you want money, I've got none. It's like, no, I don't want any money. I've got a demo. Will you have a listen to it? And I was like, yeah, of course. Why not? <laughs> it wasn't the first time that it had happened to me. He went off. I can't remember it. I wouldn't even say sheepishly, to be honest. He just went, right, thanks, you know. So I think the reason that I managed to um, catch him so quickly was that the front door was into the living room. Right, right. It was open plan. Yeah. So literally, I think I was sat on the stairs because I used to sit on the stairs and watch telly because I think if in those days we didn't have a settee. And he did actually pass it on to Rob Gretton, I found out. How come you weren't able to do that at the gym? but you had to go to the lengths to get his address and go to his house. Like, that doesn't make sense. You had the balls to go to his house, but you didn't have the balls to approach him at the gym. That's a bit weird to me. Probably because there was public around. Right, OK. Yeah, it was a bit easier one-on-one. -on -one. So what did he say when you handed him the demo? Yeah, I'll have a listen. No problem. So when I got the tape and listened to it, I thought, wow, this is interesting. I wouldn't say it was the you know the highest quality, but it certainly had a, a shambolic uh, edginess to it that was very interesting. And when you consider how the Mundy sound is very um, accepted now as a big influence on a lot of people, that sound, that sort of shambling, you know, a lot of looseness but funkiness type thing came across in the demo. Wow. So I took it to factory and I gave it to Tony Wilson and said, you should listen to this. They sound really good. They come from Little Alton. But I've still got the tape. Have you? Yeah. And I've seen it quite recently, funnily enough, because as soon as I came across it, I thought, oh, my God, there's the bloody tape that Paul put through my letterbox. It was another four years, maybe three years. Um until we signed with Factory. No, two or three years before we signed to Factory. So what happened after you'd given him the demo? I didn't know anything. What He, he did pass it on to uh, Rob Gretton. Yeah, and they Rob Gretton at the time was... New Orders manager, right. Joy Division manager. And he liked it, but nothing ever happened until we got Phil Sachs involved. Phil Sachs um, had a stall on the Arndale indoor market selling clothes. The first time I met Paul was probably with Paul Davis, uh, probably not Gaz, uh, and probably another couple of lads, but I think it was Paul and Paul Davis, and they came to my stall in the uh, Arndale Centre in Manchester when I was selling flares and all the rest of it, and they were like one of the first groups of lads that had, had come there. And at the time when we first met Phil, we'd all decided that we was we was going to bring flares back. 
And we went to his stall and he'd just bought thousands and thousands of pairs of flares, <laughs> Levi flares and um, Dickie's flares from, from America. And he was paying like 50 pence a pair. Yeah. From from the uh, from the warehouses buying up all these flares and selling them at twenty pounds a pair, so we was buying them all off him, and that's how we met Phil, who later became our our first proper manager. Sean tells the story that they used to come to the stall and nick stuff, and I think that's rubbish, because I used to have a big iron bar, and if anybody put their hand through the, you know, to pinch something, I'd smack it. So can you remember the conversation you had with him where you asked him to be the manager? Well, he was. we used to go on every Saturday to his stall just to hang out and buy clothes. And he was asking us what we was doing, what what you do? And he said, well, we're in a band. Yeah. We're a band. And he was really interested because Phil was writing to his music. Yeah. Loved, loves music, Phil. He had a great record collection, really good Northern Soul collection. In fact, he used to do DJing at the uh, Twisty Wheel. Okay. Which was a Northern Soul Club in Manchester. I'd been a DJ and I would DJed at various clubs in Manchester, even at the start of the sort of glam type thing. I was the first guy to play Bowie and Roxy in Manchester as well. Um, but because of that, I was always interested in music. And there was a lad at one of the stalls in the market who was in a band. And his band were going to be playing a night at the Hacienda called Hometown Gig, which is where they put three local bands on. I think it was like a Tuesday night or a Thursday night. Uh, you know, on obviously a dead night and they get the band's fans to come in, whatever. And I said I'd go and watch them. So I went to watch this lad's band. And I was on the balcony watching this band and Paul, Sean and two other lads, I think one of them was PD, I don't know who the other one was, came and sat next to me. And I'm going, what in the hell are you lot doing here? You know, these are my customers. They, you wouldn't get people like that in the Hacienda. And whose idea was it to ask him to manage you? Mine. Yeah? Yeah. What did you say to him? Do you want to manage us? Oh, that was it? Yeah. <laughs> we need a proper manager. My dad's working. He's, he's doing the working men's clubs at night. He's got, he's got his post office round. We need someone to work on this. And he's, he was really into it. And he said, well, why don't you give me a tape? Because... A guy who'd been my best mate was Mike Pickering. All through the 70s, Mike Pickering had been my best friend. Mike Pick was involved with the Hacienda. He chose the bands that played, etc., etc. So I thought, oh, let me have a tape. I'll see if I can help you out. Yeah. And then what? And then it was time for the um, <clears throat> Battle of the Bands competition at the Hacienda. So in those days, it was you, Sean, Mark, Gaz, PD. and PD, just the five of you. Yeah, which was um, went on for a few weeks. There was all these bands that entered, and it got whittled down to the last four. And uh, we was in the last four, but we couldn't do the show because Mark Day had a nosebleed and got rushed <laughs> to hospital, proper spinal tap. Uh, so we missed out, but oh. we won the competition anyway. How? Because the winner of the competition got to put out a record on Factory Records. Right. And it was already decided that we was the winners. Oh, wow. <laughs> so even though you didn't play the last show, Even though we didn't still play won. the last show, we still won. Oh, wow, I didn't yeah. know that. So then they put out that 12-inch EP. What was that? It was called uh, the 45 EP. It was three songs on a 12-inch record. Paul Davis, also known as PD, has fond memories of that time. What was it like going into the studio for the first time when you recorded the first single? You with Mike Pickering. Uh, quick, good, and when you hear it, we drive home with a cassette in the car, you know how it's going and everything, and you just be, yeah. be smirking at six in the morning driving home uh, in the car after the studio. Mark also remembers it fondly. It was buzzing, it was, it was excited, but um, this is where you find out how it's very magnified in what you're doing. You've got to play in time, it's got to hit the mark. Do you remember how you felt when your first single was released and available to buy in the shops? Yeah, yeah, it was, I 
thought, wow, this is good. Yeah. Um, what was it? Was it the egg? See, this is where Paul was great. He'd know this. I'm just useless. So it was delightful Oasis and this feeling all on the 12-inch record. And what did that feel like? Oh, it was great. Yeah. We'd already been in a studio to do the demos. Right. But it was the difference between night and day, you know, going going from a little little one-room studio thing and, and, and going into a real studio. Well, it was great listening to hearing it on John Peel when he first played it, and then when we went down to do a John Peel session, that was really good. It was one of those, right, let's go to London, do a John Peel session. Um, yeah, and that was daunting, that was good. I think we did it a live version, so we just played it live, so it wasn't, you know... Um, yeah, and that was great to hear it on the rain on John Peel, because that's what everybody used to listen to. And who was the engineer? Who was the producer of that? Producer was Mike Pickering. Oh, wow. Yeah, we got him to produce it. Um, the engineer was Tim Oliver, who now works at Real World in, in Bath. Um, but Mike went on to be uh, the Mike Pickering, the DJ from the Hacienda, right. and also uh, M from M People. M People was Mike's band. Right. Who had great success. Yeah. Huge success. Yeah. You know, we was all still a bit intimidated because they knew how to work stuff in a studio and we didn't. Right. We was only just learning our instruments. And how were you? What was your attitude like in the studio with Mike? Were you like, this is the way we're doing it and that's that? Or did you take direction well from him? Well, we didn't know how we was going to do it until we got there and he recorded us all live. It was a live performance. Okay. And then I remember he changed the snare sound from Gazzy's drum because it was when samplers had just started to come to yeah. be affordable. So the snare sound on, on that 12-inch EP is actually Phil Collins's snare sampled. Wow. Yeah. It's a great snare sound. Yeah. So we did it all live and he changed... Bits like that, you know, yeah. in, in a, after we recorded it live. And how was Sean at that time? Sean was great. Sean was still Sean. The Sean that I like and love. Right. You know. But, what, uh, is, what does that mean? Funny, artistic, friendly, um, very funny, very funny. And what uh, was your relationship like with him at that time? Great, great. We was inseparable. Really? Yeah, yeah. We was even living together. Yeah. Mm. With Bez as well? Or? Bez ended up living with us, yeah, on a one-bedroom yeah. apartment. In Boothstown. In Boothstown, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. when did the decision come to move out of the family home and in with your brother? Um, probably after I discovered weed. Yeah. Yeah. Your mum and dad didn't like you smoking weed. Well, they didn't know. It was just terrible going home stoned. <laughs> <laughs> and having to speak to them. Yeah. So it was like, I ended up living um, at Sean's house. Sean was married at this point. I was going to ask you about that. So yeah. at the time then, Sean had already married Denise. Yeah. And you'd moved in with him and Denise. More or less, yeah. I was yeah. staying there every night, you know. It and wasn't official, but I was there. And you were already in a relationship with Stephanie at that with, point. With Steph, yeah. Tell me about Steph. Steph was my girlfriend at school from being... 11, 12, 13 years old. Right. Up until being, up until being 20. Oh, wow, it's a long relationship. Yeah, not, not every, right. you know, there was split ups and break ups in between, yeah. but it was a good long session. Yeah. You know. Were you in love with Stephanie? Oh, God, I didn't know what love is or love was back then. No? No, I had no idea. No so tell idea. me a bit more about your relationship. It was great because we were teenagers together, going out with each other at school. Um, then when we left school, we lost touch for a while. Then we got back in touch and then went out together. And then, and then it was like, this is what you're supposed to do. You leave school, you get a job, you've got your girlfriend, you get engaged, you get married and you get a house. Then you work till you retire. So tell me about when you decided that you would ask her to marry you. Ooh, God, I've not thought about this for 40-odd years. See, I can't remember. 
I can't yeah. remember when it was. It was probably just like she would get engaged. And she was like, yeah, why not? Right. Mm. And did you actually think you were going to go through with it and marry her? Yeah, yeah. And that was when, the, when I discovered marijuana. And that put the changed. death knell on the relationship? Yeah, on the relationship and on the... Uh, on the script of what you're supposed to do with your life. So you actually feel like marijuana was responsible for opening your mind to other possibilities than the conventional Yeah, group. yeah, definitely. Yeah? That's what it did for me. How was that? Explain. Everything sounded different. Everything tasted different when you had your first joint. Mm. Everything tasted like gourmet food. Yeah. Um... Music sounded different because you was hearing things you'd never heard before, yeah. especially if you had your headphones on. Yeah. Um, it just made everything different. And what about your outlook on life? That changed as well. It was like yeah. it, it, it was back to wanting to travel. Right. Mm. Do you think there's like a sweet spot with marijuana use in terms of that there's a, an amount that you can consume that improves your life, but then when you get beyond that, it starts having a negative effect. Yeah, that's exactly what it did to me. It started sending me paranoid. Did it? Yeah, and I because hated it. Because you were having too much? Too much, way too much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Typical addict overdoing it. Right, okay. Mm. Do, you, do you regret that, though? Do you, do you wish that you could still smoke weed in a kind of... in a, a responsible manner <laughs> um, I wish you could still drink in a responsible manner but I can't no wish you could drink like a gentleman yeah. but I can't no and, uh, probably the same with weed as well did you ever think at that point oh I think I'm an addict like I'm drinking a lot I'm smoking a lot of weed I have a problem here no not at all no. well, especially sure. with the drinking because we were brought up in a drinking culture yeah. no I know you know we, yeah Summer nights, we're sat outside the pub waiting for my granddad to come out. And but how many would you drink in an average night? Pints. Mm. Probably about five pints. Yeah. Five pints, a couple of pernos. <laughs> perno and black. Per perno, perno and, and lemonade. orange, mine. Ooh, I used to drink mm. perno and lemonade. <laughs> Ew. And would you get drunk every night? Not drunk, Not not like throwing up and stuff you get a nice buzz off it right and how did stephanie behave around you when you were drinking and smoking weed um she didn't really see lots of weed smoking because we finished uh, our relationship once that started right so i kept that hidden right so what happened how did you break up i met alison who who worked in the uh the Market Street indoor market. Mm -hmm. One Saturday afternoon, I was walking past a shoe store yeah. and I saw her in there working and just went in and got a phone number. What did he say? Can I have your phone number? Is that it? Yeah. I can I have your phone <laughs> number? Yeah. And you were already engaged to Steph at this point? Yeah. Did you not feel bad? Oh, I felt bad for years, yeah. Did you? Yeah. So what happened? You called Alice and you started seeing her on the side? Started or? seeing her on the side. Oh, dear. Smoking more and more weed. And uh, I hadn't seen Steph for like two weeks. And um, it was Denise, Sean's wife, that said, you're going to have to tell her that it's you're going to see her again or you're not going to see her again. Mm-hmm. So I made that dreaded phone call. What did you say? Uh, I think uh, uh, we need a break. You didn't tell her that you were seeing someone no. else? No. Oh, no. And how did she respond when you said that? Um, I think she just put the phone down <laughs> and I never saw her again yeah. for years. Did you get the engagement ring back? Uh, I think I might have done, actually. Really? Yeah, I didn't oh. ask for it. I think she just sent it. Yeah. Yeah. And then did you ever contact her again? Did you ever see her again? After that? Not for years and years and years and years and years. Right. Saw her on Market Street. And then what happened? We just said hello to each other. Yeah? Yeah. So how would you feel now when you look back on that relationship? Oh, it was a bit cruel what I did. Yeah, but you were young, weren't you? I mean... Yeah, I was only 18, 19. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Okay, so we're at the point where you'd moved out of your mum and dad. You were staying with Sean and Denise mm-hmm. most of the time. You'd release your first EP on Factory. How did that release go? Um, it did okay, actually. It got into the indie charts in the enemy. The enemy started writing about you. Was that the first time they'd ever mentioned you? Yeah, it would have been. Dave Haslam was the first journalist to lead the Monday's charge. I became like a, a I guess what you call like a champion of them, you know. So at that point in 85 into 86, I also... Um, had been asked by the NME to do bits of writing for them. So I was in a kind of position where if there was a band I really liked, I could push them. And I have to say that a lot of Manchester bands I was not that interested in. So I started going to see the Mondays play um, after being introduced to the music in, on, on the first record. And that's when I kind of realised that um, that kind of uh, whatever whatever we want to call it now, casual, Perry boy, whatever, that look, uh, no no other band was sporting that. Bands at that point, certainly, even now, they need people to kind of knock on doors for them. Uh, you know, the, because at Factory, there's no big PR machine. There's no marketing. So I, I remember asking if I could review the album and uh, I managed to get pretty good amount of space a third of a page or something and um i kind of waxed lyrical about the album but i'd still never had a conversation with them and uh i honestly don't think the mondays had ever been interviewed before certainly not by um a national music paper do you remember how you felt when you first saw that the enemy was writing about you um i remember thinking okay things are going to change I kind of had the feeling from seeing them wandering around and playing that they weren't, again, going to be like the other bands who were going to be talking about vegetarianism or, you know, Thatcher. I kind of thought the conversation would be a bit more uh, freestyle, shall we say. And I arrived and there were about five or six people in the room but it turned out, I think, only two or maximum three of the lads in the room were actually in Happy Mondays. And the others were part, just part of the gang. They were just hanging out for the afternoon. And, I mean, to be honest, that kind of set the scene for the Mondays forever. It, they were never... There was always a gang with them, you know. And they couldn't have been less bothered about helping me write something interesting about the band. Not every band had a lot to say, but most bands would be, okay, the NME guy has come to interview us. Let's, you know, let's let's at least all turn up, number one. (laughs) And number two, let's say stuff that is interesting so that, you know, we come across well. And... um, I gave up, to be honest. I gave up um, and I came away with nothing worth talking about. And I, so what I did was I, I got went into town. The manager, Phil Sachs, uh, had a, a stall in Arndale Market. So I went to Phil and I said, look, I've, I've done my best with your lads, but there's nothing. And Phil, you know, gab gift of the gab so he was like saying stuff like 
uh, they're the new Velvet Underground, you know, which is like exactly it, that's what you want because then you write that in the NME and then you know the headline piece, the new Velvet Underground, and that'll help sell records. So he was tell he he knew the game, but they were so not interested in the game. This was 1987, wasn't it? No, the album was 87. Oh, what year so was this then? This must have been 85. Okay. 85. And who were your rivals at the time? Who were the who who were your peers that you were battling with to get in the charts at that point? Can you remember? The Bunny Man was still was was still riding high. Lloyd Cole and the Commotions. And then the was were Joy Division New Order by this point? Yeah. Joy Division yeah. was was New Order by yeah. now. Tell me about your first dealings with Factory Records and the first time you met Tony. Did I suppose you... it was when he asked us to go on um, his TV show, The Other Side of Midnight. Was this before or after this EP had been released? I think it was around about the same time. Did you meet him around the time of the EP being recorded? Like, Was he part of the discussion or were you always dealing with Rob? And... No, we were always dealing with uh, Phil, Phil Sachs. Who, right. who who then, like a proper manager, you know, right. he would go and see the records. So label. you never met Tony no. at this point. Do you remember the first time you met him? I really don't. Okay. But I would have been intimidated and all that. Up to Bummed, he wasn't really interested. And a great example was when they did that festival of the 10th summer at GMAX. The Mondays were the only factory band that had struggled to get an invite. I had to fight like mad to get them an invite to that gig. Um, but later, Tony was mesmerised by Bev and Sean. Um, I don't remember him rushing back from having interviewed Anthony Burgess uh, for Granada so that he could go and have a chat with Bev. And I'm saying, what, the bloke who, who wrote Clockwork Orange and you're running to come back and have a chat with Bev? I don't get it. But Tony did. He rushed back. I remember when we, he used to come to our house. Yeah. And he's one of the few people... I've met a lot of celebrities in my time, but he's one of the few people who was actually quite starstruck around. Mm. He had a real magnetism about him, yeah. didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He had a real aura of something really special. Mm. And I was quite in awe of him, really, the whole time, whenever uh, I met him. And also because I knew which school he went to because he passed his 11-plus in Salford yeah. and I knew he went to De La Salle, yeah. where there was all clever kids yeah. and they all spoke Latin. And he went to Oxford as well, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, yeah after De La Salle. Yeah. Yeah. So you released that EP and what happened after that? Um, it did OK. We got some good reviews and then it was time for an album. Squirrel and G-Man, 24-hour party people, plastic face count, smile, white out, produced by John Cale of the Velvet Underground. So how on earth did that make you feel that you were being paired up with John Cale? Oh, it was an ace. <laughs> I couldn't stop smiling. Where did that decision come from? It was a genius pairing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that came from... Um, there was a, a music festival in Manchester called the Festival of the Tenth Summer. And... Um, the Smiths and New Order were playing at GMAX and before them two came on they got John Cale over from America and John Cale did a, 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 a like an hour long set yeah. and that came about through him doing that show. Right. Um, Whose idea was it to bring him in as the producer? Possibly Phil Sachs and possibly Tony. And I thought if I had my Complete choice, I'd have John Cale. Because, one, he was my hero. Two, he'd produced uh, the first Jonathan Richmond album, although there were actually demos produced by him. You know, Nico. He had done uh, other people's albums, the first album, and they'd gone off and become famous. Um, so I thought it would be great. And um, Bernard said, well, if you say to Tony... Why don't you get John Cale? He'll ignore you. Leave it with me. About the following week, Tony says to me, I've got a great idea for producing the, the Monday. I said, who? He said, John Cale. I said, oh, that's great. You know, 
He always thought he came up with, you know, he came up by itself, but he didn't. Because Factory Records have got that connection with Velvet Underground because of the factory in New York. Oh, is that where the name Factory came from, from Andy uh, Warhol's factory? I think it was all part of it, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they they always had that connection, and like, like Rob Gretton, Alan Erasmus, Tony Wilson, Phil Sachs, Mike Pickering, they was all into the... Uh, the um, Andy Warhol thing and, and the Velvet Underground. Yeah. So years later, they invited him over to this festival that sounds summer, and they yeah. got talking. We got a new band. Right. Would you like to produce them? Right. And it, it and came from that. Did they ask you if you were okay with him doing it? Oh yeah, yeah. And what What did you say? Of course, it's John Kell from the Velvet Underground. <laughs> Damn right, it's good. So, what was he like? I know you've told me some stories about him in the past. Yeah, he was clean at the time. He cleaned himself up from his heroin addiction and all his uh, drinking and, and all his drug taking. So he was clean and sober at the time. All he wanted to do was play squash. Oh, wow. Yeah, he, he kept asking the band, does anyone play squash? Does I need a squash partner? Does anyone play squash? <laughs> <laughs> we was just too busy getting drunk and uh, taking drugs and being in a band. Um, he watched the new TV news every night at six o'clock. We'd have to break while he watched the news. Oh. And he, ha he ate a lot of extra strong mints. Mark has very mixed memories of that time. Well, he was very professional and, and proper. He didn't understand us at all. Um, Satsumas, we used to sit there with Satsumas, and did Paul tell you that? Satsumas, sit there with his oranges, peeling them, feet up, thinking. He, he came into the recording studio where, we was, where I was jamming because he wanted to hear us live and he just kept looking at what we were doing. Um, and to be honest, I didn't know who, I didn't know who he was, really. You know, like, it was, you know, it was first, first proper, we had to go to London, in his recording studio and high ride, yeah, brilliant, do it. Um, and we stayed in Swiss Cottage. Oh, that was a laugh and a half. Yeah, <clears throat> that's when I got introduced to um, Class A's, never again. Jesus. Oh dear. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> Not telling you. I, thought, I can't work on this shit. <laughs> I'll stick with what I know. <laughs> You know. Were the drugs just all over the place? And was it kind of like expected that everyone would take lots of drugs? Well, it wasn't expected. It was just there. It was just everywhere we went, it, it was there. He taught us, he got us how to play better, actually, because it was another record that was done live as, as a live band in the studio. Okay. We played, we played the song and he'd say, yeah, it's good, play it faster. So we'd right. play it a bit faster and he'd record that. He said, yeah, yeah, you're getting there, but it needs to be even faster. So all our songs ended up being <laughs> twice as fast as he was as we was written. <laughs> but he got us to play as a band. Right. He didn't record the instruments separately then? No. There was overdubs done later yeah. on, but it was recorded as a live band. And how long did it take to record that album? Oh, recorded and mixed in ten days. Can you remember when you did? Did the, was there a day when you all sat down and listened to the finished product? Not all together. No, I think everyone went off on their own separate trip and listened to the yeah. the, uh, the album at their own leisure. And what did you feel when you when you heard it? I thought it was great. Yeah. It was just good to get our songs recorded. Right. Did you feel like it was going to be a success? Didn't, wasn't thinking like that. No. Wasn't thinking. Still wanted to do Top of the Pops. Yeah. But wasn't thinking of overnight success because it, it didn't happen that way. What about gigs at that point? Were you still doing lots of live shows or not? We'd started to get more and more shows. We'd started to travel. Were you getting paid at this point for the shows? Yeah, we was covering our cost, cost of the van. Yeah. Cost of uh, a couple of crates of beer. Who would drive the van? My dad. Yeah. He was driver, sound engineer, manager, tour manager, roadie, guitar yeah. tech, bass tech. He did everything. And it's not just Derek, also known as Horseman, that bears credits with their success. 
Well, both uh, Gary Cameron and so don't forget Linda as well, because she used to make the corned beef and tomato butties for us all when we all went out on the road. And uh, without Horseman, there would, there would have been no Happy Mondays. He was the true driving force uh, behind it all, you know what I mean? And uh, his love of his sons, he'd do anything for his sons, you know what I mean? There was not nothing he wouldn't do. He, put, he took the band on, drove us all around, you know what I mean? And, and a lot of the time, in the early days, it, it costed him. He, it was coming out of his own wallet, you know what I mean? We didn't even make enough in the gate to, to, to uh, pay for the van with the fuel, you know what I mean? He's remember buying us all bacon butties at the server. And he, he honestly, he, he was such a great man. And uh, he done such a lot. For, for, like, say, there would be no Happy Mondays if it weren't for us, man. Every time they went on a gig, yeah. Well, oh, yeah. that was best telling everybody Linda's corned beef butties kept us alive. How yeah. did you feel having your dad go alongside you the whole time? Great, I was cool about it. Was shot? I'm not sure. Not sure. I think I think he might have been a bit embarrassed. Oh, that's a shame. I remember uh, when I met you in Iceland in 1990, your dad was very much a part of the scene. Oh, yeah. And your dad would stand in for Sean in the sound check, yeah. singing, and yeah. everybody loved your dad. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, he can sing better than Sean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he can sound like Sean when he wants to. Like, he, he did sound like Sean. Yeah. But it's just slightly better. Yeah. So tell us some stories of those first few gigs when you went round in the van. You remember any in particular that stand stand out? Um, when it's a van, it, it was a van without seats because there was no laws back in them days. You could just <laughs> pile as many people in the back of a transit van as you wanted to. Oh. So we'd all be there with cushions on the floor. It was like a nest. It was like <laughs> probably not just the band but, but friends as well okay we need to talk about when bez first started being part of the band when yeah. did that happen the first time at the hacienda well we'd started hanging out with bez everyone kept saying we should meet this kid called bez who'd just come back from morocco living in a cave my very first meeting of uh, uh paul and sean is when they was in the car what we used to call the egg the old yellow escort mark two escort I was up at the stocks and uh, I'd been up to a lot, a lot of mischief anyway. And next thing, uh, Paul and Sean pulled in, in on this in the egg and I seen two little heads about that big peeping up over the dashboard. And that was like my first meeting of him. And, uh, and at that time I'd, I'd heard a lot about, obviously, because Gaz, Mark and Paul, we all went to the same school. So I, I obviously knew about the band and they'd just got back from Amsterdam at the time and they had their, their, their single Delightful on it. And to me, it was so amazing that people I went to school with had had this record out. It was like amazing, you know what I mean? And uh, yeah, and I was just so blown away, you know what I mean? I, and I actually thought they were superstars by that time and they looked so cool. The pair of them, like, they're proper cool as fuck, you know what I mean? Everyone's saying, you, you and Sean will get on with him really well. The last thing on my mind was being part of the Happy Mondays, you know what I mean? Because uh, I couldn't play anything, I couldn't do anything. I'm not like a, a musician, you know what I mean? We eventually met him and got on really well with him. So he was hanging around with us, coming to rehearsals, having a listen. And uh, I, I was just like, uh, yeah. I was just so happy that no people I knew had got a record out because it was like a, a no a dream beyond your your no grasp on the night no the the tube it was and a new order was playing for the tube and the Mondays were supporting and that's the actual night that I actually joined the band I just bought loads of uh, black microdots and white microdots. And these Nikodots supposed allegedly came from a thing called Operation Jeweler, which I don't know if you remember or not, but it was these kids who wanted to spike all the reservoirs in England and turn on the whole of England to acid, uh, onto acid. 
And these acid was supposed to be for, no leftovers from this operation. So anyway, we all done this acid. Uh, and by the time it was it was showtime at the hacienda, our kid was off his nut and said to Bez, you're going to have to get up there with me. Because I'm right off my finger, he needed moral support. <laughs> and uh, I said, fuck off, I'm not getting on stage, are you fucking mad? And uh, after a bit of chewing and throwing, and uh, thinking, I said, oh, I, I, I had to jump on stage, obviously, you know what I mean? And on the way up there, I seen a, a pair of maracas which I grabbed. And I got on there and I was like off my head on this assay. I was giving it rock all. And I had a, when I came off, I had a hole the size of a 50 pence piece in my hand. And I went home laughing that night. But the funny thing is next day, somebody said to uh, Sean and Paul, when they was out of the egg, this girl come up and said to him, well, that was really nice of you last night, letting that kid with special needs on stage with you. <laughs> What did you feel having Bez on stage? Did you think that was a good thing? Yeah, it was great. It took the focus off me. Right. It's funny because you don't really like to be the centre of attention, do you? Not at all, no. I could never be a singer. You were. A lead in, singer. No. You were in big arms. That's different. Why? It's the same. Different. No. I could never have been a lead singer in a band. But you were a but few I did. years later. Yeah, years <laughs> late. Not a few years, a lot of years later. Yeah. But back in them days, there's no way. I stood, I didn't even like having my photograph taken. Really? Yeah, if you, you notice. Over on, that. If you notice on early photos, I'm stood at the back hiding. <laughs> Why was that? Was it because you didn't like people to look at you? Was it because you didn't feel worthy? Like, what was the rationale behind that? Um, sometimes. I spoke to Gaz about this as well. We felt like phonies. We definitely had a lot of imposter syndrome. I don't think we ever expected to to do anything. Paul probably did. He had he had inner ambitions, but we probably didn't. And I think once we made it, we expected it to implode at any point. And I don't think Paul did. Paul saw this as what he what he wanted and wanted it to carry on. You see, imposter syndrome. Yeah, we we wasn't trained musicians and like. You're not supposed to come from where we come from and be in a band. You're supposed to do that thing we was talking about before, get a job, get a mortgage, get a girlfriend, get married, have kids. Can you remember the first time you didn't feel like a phony? No, it was probably after I had a lot of therapy. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Which would have been when? 2008. When we moved here? Yeah. That was the first time. You yeah. weren't even in the band anymore at that point. No, but I spoke about what went on early days. So you really only ceased to feel like a phony when you reformed with the original lineup and relaunched the group. That's correct. Yeah. Wow. Mm. That's that's incredible. I mean, even during the height of the success with Pills and Thrills, you still felt felt like an imposter. Mm. Yeah. It took me years to learn it names of the strings on the bass. I know them now, G, D, A and E. I used to call the fat string, the one next to the fat string, the thin string and the one next to the thin string. Wow. I didn't know it was G, D, A and E. But you obviously didn't need to know that. No, I didn't. Do you not think some of the most gifted musicians are ones that play intuitively like that? Yeah, Paul McCartney can't read music. Really? Mm. Well, there you go. Did you know that at the time? No. I bet you wish you did, didn't you? Yeah, that would have helped tremendously. So what would your advice be to people who are starting out and want to be in a band and want to have the success that you did, who who might be feeling the same way you did? Wow, it's all it's so different these days with the, the internet and, and, and all this celebrity culture. Yeah. So people just want to be famous. Right. You know. But for people that really want to play music and make a success of it, what would your advice be? What what would what advice would you give to your younger self now with the benefit of the experience that you have? Um, just believe in yourself. Right. Just go for it. Did you believe in yourself? Yeah, I knew it was different. Okay, so what what should you have known? What ideally would you have known back then that would have helped you to be more comfortable in that role? Um that not everybody is a trained musician. You know? Right. 
that it, it's not necessary. It's not necessary. And you don't need to feel like an imposter. You don't need to feel like an imposter and it's not necessary to know all the notes of everything. Could you even argue that it could actually destroy some of the magic if you do start going out and having lessons and being told how to do it? Definitely, yeah, because there's rules. Because of the rules in music, um, I was playing bass lines where... I mean, Mark Day could read a little bit of music and I'd do bass lines and he said, you can't do that note after that note because it, 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 it doesn't work like... In, in music, it doesn't work. And I was like, well, does it sound good? And it sounded good. And I said, well, fuck it, you can do it. Yeah. You know? And he was like... But you're not supposed to. And it's like, you can do anything you want if it sounds good. Yeah. So I think if I'd have been trained, it might have held me back a bit. Yeah, I think mm. that too. Yeah. So again, what? it sounds like you did believe in yourself and that you did know that it was okay, but what have you since learned that you wish you'd known back then? Do you know, I kind of knew it was going to be okay. I already yeah. knew it was going to be okay. Right. Because of that self-belief. Right. Even though I was getting them little demons saying, you shit, you shit, you can't even read music. Right. I knew it was going to be okay. Was your brother feeding that? What? Did, you, did your brother give you a hard time because you couldn't read music? Not really, no. 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 Did no. he believe in you? Um, not sure. I had to sack him once for not turning up at rehearsals. Did you? Yeah. Tell me what I, happened. I think he lost a bit of belief. Because oh. it was taking longer than what he wanted. Right. Yeah. So what happened? So he stopped turning up at rehearsals. Mm. And uh, I had to go around to his house and said, if you don't start turning up at rehearsals, I'm going to sack you. What did he say? He turned up at rehearsals. Yeah. Did and he appreciate that you'd said that to him? No idea. But I said, it's going to take a bit longer than what you think. But it's going to yeah. happen. Yeah. You always knew? Yeah. Yeah, I just yeah. knew. Gaz explains Paul's pivotal role in keeping things moving forward. I think he was the one that took it serious more than anybody else. And I think there's a little, there's always a little bit of resentment in a band about the one who drives the band. You know, there's that thing in, 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 in the Beatles where they, talk, they, call, they used to call McCartney Beetlehead. And there's that clip where uh, Ringo says that, you know, me and John would be in the garden in Surrey in the after, afternoon, have a cup of tea, and the phone would go, and we'd go, it's him, innit? You know, we don't, he said, but he said, it's McCartney getting us in the studio. He said, but without him, we'd never have got anywhere. So people in bands complain about that, them kind of people. But you need them. Now, the bands don't don't succeed. So you need them, but they still complain about them. So we used to call him Monday Head. Monday, always Monday Head. Did you know in any kind of detail about what would happen and the trajectory of the band? No, I just knew it was all going to be okay. Yeah. All going to be okay. Yeah. You know, and that started to work out when we went on the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. Oh, I remember that. I was on that too. Yeah, Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. Go on, tell us what that is. The Enterprise Allowance Scheme was uh, this incentive of, like, you didn't have to sign on the dole every week and you got £10 more on your, do on your gyro for 12 months, yeah. which gave you 12 months to make a success of a business. Yeah. And all you had to do was prove that you had a thousand pounds in your bank account. Yeah. So we you had to got to do a course as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We went on I a did. course. <laughs> um, so we got Phil Sachs to place a thousand pound in each in same thousand pound. Just put it into your bank account for a day. Take it out the next day. Yeah. On your next statement, you say you had a thousand pound in there. So he yeah. did it for all of us. Thank fuck for Phil. Yeah. You know, and we all proved that we had a thousand pound, which we didn't really. Yeah. So we got 12 months of not having to sign on, uh, sign on the dole uh, and make a go of it. So at which point did you leave your job at the post office? Ooh, 1980, 1980, probably 84-ish. And what was the catalyst for that? Was it the Enterprise Allowance Scheme? No, I'd already left. I'd already was signing on. I'd already been... Uh, what already... made you decide to leave the post office then? I had to become a proper postman. Like getting up at four in the morning and delivering mail. And it wasn't for me, man, because I was the slowest postman in the world. <laughs> and it was cold. And it was always seemed to be winter. Yeah. And I was walking around soaking wet delivering mail. 
Yeah. And it's like, this ain't for me. Yeah. I don't want to do this anymore. So what, you left the job and signed on the doll? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And how long were you on the doll for? A couple of years. Really? Then the Enterprise Islands came along. Was it depressing being on the doll? Oh, it was great. Yeah? Yeah. Were you living at home still at that point? Still at home, yeah. Still, And then also... Also, um, staying at Sean and Denise's house. Right. Yeah. yeah. But it meant we could get in my car, drive to Moss Side in Manchester, and get one pound wraps of weed. A pound? A pound for one wrap of weed. You got enough for a couple oh, of jobs. Oh, not a pound in not weight. A pound you need in a pound weight. in. A pound right. in money. Yeah. You got enough for like four joints. Yeah. So um, that's what we did. We just got stoned every day and listened to music. The saddest thing for me was when, obviously, when uh, I got the phone call of the, the morning Paul died, you know what I mean? And uh, Mealy's going, Bez, Ben, you got to call me. My dad said, no. And I, I, I couldn't believe it, you know what I mean? And uh, I and we, I rushed right down to the house, you know what I mean? And he was still laying in the, the front room. Mark had tried and done some mouth-to-mouth on him. And uh, yeah, they were so shocking to see one of your best mates who you've spent uh, no late lay there dead and uh, and you no know, like you don't you uh, you yeah you like it comes so unexpectedly, doesn't it? Death, you know what I mean? Like and uh, yeah, it's just like I'll ne- I'll never forget you no know, his face. You no, know, really loved loved him like a brother. You know what I mean? Part of a band, we shared so many moments together. And uh, I used to have a, a cassette player, and you could play two tapes at the same time, and get you could get a drum machine going, put these two tapes in, and you just get all to plug his bass. You could plug your bass in, and you used to plug his bass in and play bass over the top of it. So we used to have things like. Uh, Penguin Cafe, Frank Sapper, some drum machine going, and Orson's bass playing over the lot of it. And every now and again, it made this magic moment like you've never heard before. You're like, oh, yeah, that's it. Coming up on next week's show. I have read that he said working with the Mondays was like having a 2,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> um, and, like... Pieces of it missing. Bond is where it really took off. And I think the Manchester thing was starting. You had Hallelujah and the remixes and the dance music and ecstasy. That's when the Mondays took off. And the word indie dance came about because you could finally dance to indie music. Uh, it was the height of the ecstasy explosion. So the whole band was on really good fives, you know what I mean? Everyone was just eating each, you know what I mean? We're playing out with another Big Arm track and it's called Into You. Watch out for the Big Arm album that's going to be released any day now. Thank you so much to our fab guests and, of course, to you for being with us. We really appreciate you. Please carry on spreading the word about the podcast and please subscribe to it and give us a nice review and rating if you've not already done so. It really helps us. The website is paulrider.tv and that's got links to all of our socials as well as a fun shop with some really cool merch so please come and join in the fun on the uh, social media accounts please join us again next week and remember we now drop new episodes every Sunday night at 9pm UK time or 1pm Pacific time on Sundays thank you again to all of you for being here but the biggest thanks of course must go to the late great Paul Ryder
No, I told you. She said you can get it on YouTube now.